Cheryl and I have been watching a show uh, for a while now called Heartland. It's a Canadian show. I don't know if you've seen Heartland. It's on Netflix. Great show uh, about a Amy Fleming who she it, it, it can be a little uh, soap opera-ish at, at times, but you know it, it's but it's beautiful and it's about horses and and I'm not a horse guy. I love looking at horses. I love pictures of horses. I love seeing them run. I don't like riding them. It's uncomfortable. It's frightening. I'm just I'm just not there. But but we watch this show and and I love watching the riding and, and the horses that take place. And I was thinking just before coming up here that. There are times in our lives where our spiritual life is like riding a horse at a fast gallop. I mean, wow, the wind is blowing by us and we're just holding on and, and it's a wild ride. And then there, there are times in our spiritual lives where it's like a, a trot. You know, we're moving and we can feel it. We're going forward. And then there are other times in our spiritual life where you hear the Lord really say, whoa, steady, steady. I feel like tonight, and I don't know why, it may just be how Pastor Rick is feeling, it may not be how any of y'all are feeling right now, but I feel like tonight is a steadying. As, as though the Lord is saying to you and saying to me, steady, steady, whoa, it's gonna be all right. We're not galloping right now, we're not trotting, and we're not at a standstill, but we are at a steady pace. I found over the years in teaching through the Bible, there are some teachings that are just mind-blowing. Actually, for me, every teaching is mind-blowing, but there are some that, that it's just you can sense the emotion rolling out of the pages of Scripture. You can feel the Spirit moving in the room, and, and as people gather in the name of Jesus and in the Word of Christ, things move and happen and changes take place and hearts are, are pierced. And then there are times where it's just steady. Not boring, but steady. I feel like Genesis 48 and 47, we'll do those two chapters, 47 and 48 are steady. We're gonna continue now tonight a little further in the story of Joseph and Jacob. And if, again, the Lord had a word for us, and if I'm hearing right, I think that word is steady. Let's pick it up where we left off in Genesis chapter 46, verse 31. Genesis 46, 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Joseph's telling his brothers, you shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So we see what Joseph's doing. He realizes the value of telling Pharaoh, hey, my family are shepherd folk. They're keepers of sheep and cows and, and oxen. That's, that's what they do. And by telling Pharaoh this, Joseph knows he is all but ensuring that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, will be set apart from Egyptian society. They will be out and away from the alien Egyptian way of life, protected from being drawn into Egyptian paganism and Egyptian immorality and the Egyptian way of doing things. They will be set apart in Goshen, a place just 
to themselves. And so picking up in verse one of chapter 47, then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. By definition, sojourn means we are not here to settle. We've come to stay for the time being. They would be there 430 years. But we've come to sojourn, not settle. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, as we talked about last study, Egypt found shepherds loathsome. That is detestable, disgusting. The word is toabot. And it means an abomination. They just could not handle shepherds. They were the lowest of the lowest class of society. But while Egypt found shepherds loathsome, they still needed them. Egypt is a type of the world. We've said that over and over. We'll say it many more times, especially as we head toward Exodus, Lord willing. Egypt is a picture, a type, a symbol in scripture of the world. And what I'm saying is that even while the, the tones, the sweet tones of the 23rd Psalm ring like pastoral poetry to most people who hear it, this world loathes shepherding. This world detests the very shepherding it so desperately needs. Why? Because shepherds lead. And people don't want to be led. Shepherds lead forward, and to be led is detestable to the natural man. I want to go my way. I want to do my thing. I want to walk in my attitude and my opinions and what I think is right, what's good in my eyes. That's, that's what I want to do, and the shepherd leads, and the sheep follow. To be called to follow, told where to go, what to do, how and when, often without a why, but I'm leading you to this pasture. Why do we have to go here, Lord? Oftentimes we don't even know, and that's an abomination. It's detestable to the self-will. Jesus said over in John chapter 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And my own, they know me. In verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The follower of Jesus Christ is by definition led. We are led sheep, shepherded 
by the good shepherd, drawn forward, following after him, far beyond all human manipulation or driving or, or pushing or compelling. And so we take great comfort in reading, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or, or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Or Micah chapter five, verse four, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. The shepherd, the shepherd who leads, the shepherd who we follow. Are you following? Are you led? Are you driving? Are you at peace or are you in contention? Listen, even when other people or powers or governmental authorities even, as we're experiencing in this, in this season, even while others would drive you, we have peace in all situations because we follow the good shepherd. No matter how the world drives, we are led. You, you can be led if you're not by calling on the name of the Lord. I've been thinking a lot about this. Many of you have too. I've, I've had some great conversations this week with brothers struggling in this, in this season as I am struggling in this season. But I keep coming back to this issue of peace and of following Jesus and of trusting that regardless of what happens in the world, he's got us. He's doing something. He knows what's up. And I think, how do Christians live under oppressive regimes like North Korea, which is at the top of the list, or Afghanistan, or Somalia, or Iran, or Washington State? How do we, <laughs> how will we face the growing world order, globalism? Let me just say something to you, and I wanna say this as matter-of-factly as possible, and we've talked about this recently in the recent weeks, but globalism will overrun this world. It's not a matter of if, it's when. This will happen, and it may happen before Jesus leads us up and out. It's entirely possible. We will see the darkness before the dawn, that's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that we need the prophetic word, the prophetic word more sure, to which we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining where? In a dark place, until the morning star rises in your hearts. So we need the light of Jesus because it's gonna grow dark, it's gonna grow dim, and the question is, even if globalism and the globalists and the world powers overrun the entire world in which we live, will we be driven or will we be led? You can choose to be led by the one true power, Jesus Christ himself. Oh, I pray, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. 
for our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. Great old hymn. Now, in our study before us, the people of Israel are shepherds. And what we're gonna discover for the first time in the Bible, God himself will be referred to as shepherd. First mention, and, and that's coming up in, in a few minutes here. But note that the driven person, regardless of whether they want to be driven or not, if they're caught up in drivenness, the driven person tends to be self-absorbed. He has to be to survive. It's the only way you can do it to keep all the plates spinning, to maintain control, and to be totally self-focused and self-absorbed is how you get by when you are a driven man or woman. But the man or woman who's led, guess what? Rather than self-absorbed, they are enabled to bless others. Watch this. Verse seven of chapter 47, then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. I just love the scene. I mean, wait a minute, Who, who's the Pharaoh here? This old man comes limping in. What was Jacob by comparison to Pharaoh? Jacob, this old smelly shepherd and Pharaoh, ruler of the land. Hebrews chapter seven, verse seven tells us, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Jacob, in my estimation, was the greater though he was the simple shepherd. Coming before Pharaoh, he comes in and he blesses him. Verse eight, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice. He blesses him coming in, and he blesses him going out, and that's what a led person does. If you are led by the good shepherd, you just bless as you come and you go. You have the freedom to bless in the name of the Lord. But this old, limping, world-weary shepherd doubly blesses the king of all the land. Why? Well, partially because the Abrahamic covenant is in play. It's still at work. What has Pharaoh done but bless the children of Israel and those who bless you, I will bless, says the Lord. And so Pharaoh was blessed by Jacob, by Israel, because he blessed Israel. And that's always how it works. You can be a world power, a world leader like Pharaoh, but if you bless Israel, you yourself will be blessed. Now, in these verses, as he blesses coming in and blesses going out, in the middle, he sounds a little bit like a crusty, cantankerous old curmudgeon. As he says, the years of my sojourning have been few and unpleasant. You read that, you think, wow, Jacob, feeling a bit surly? Some would say after the rough road of Jacob's life and go back and think it through, he has every right to say his years have been few and unpleasant, difficult, a hard road to walk. But you know, Jacob is speaking some truth here. I gotta say something here that's not easy for me to say because I tend to be kind of an optimist. Uh, I, I tend to look at the good side of things. I enjoy being happy. I love joy. I, I, I tend to wanna be upbeat. 
to find the good in things. I really do. That's part of my nature. And yet I realize that the pleasant moments of this life are occasional peaks among the more commonly difficult valleys and plains. The joyful moments are from time to time. And then in between, there is common life and the dips and the valleys and the difficulties and the shadows. Which is why people are always aiming for the peaks because the mundane, humdrum, everyday life tends to be more on the unpleasant side. So we look for those pleasant moments. The word that Jacob uses here when he says, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, the word is literally evil. It's ra'im. Few and ra'im have been my years. Evil have been my days. And I think, well, Jacob, you're a patriarch. How could your days be evil? And Paul says the same thing. Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why, Paul? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. Dark days. Difficult times. And you know what? The times that we're in right now, I don't say this to discourage, but it might not get better. It may not. I think we Americans need to toughen up a bit. Because the closer we get to the end, the more evil the days will become. The closer we get to the bright, shining dawn of the calling home of Jesus and then the glorious return of Jesus after that, the darker this world will become. The Bible clearly says that. It will not ramp up better and better and better. It's gonna get worse and worse and worse. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20 speaks a word that I think so aptly describes American morality today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And listen, the globalists are those who would exert control over you. Many of them don't even know they're doing it. They really think it's the good thing to do. And there are those who think that evil is good. And good is evil and cannot make the distinction. And so Paul, in writing of the end times, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, says, this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. That doesn't mean, guys, understand what he's saying. <laughs> it's not saying go home and start ignoring her. No, no. No, what he's saying is focus. He says, those who weep, as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not buy. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. What are you talking about, Paul? Paul, focus. Focus. Right now, our lives are barreling toward the end. Focus. Steady, whoa. Steady. We need to be steady on. And the last thing that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31, for the form of this world is passing away. Man, people talk about wanting to get back to normal. The form of this world is passing away. There's no going back. We're headed forward into the arms of our shepherd. 
our peace is that we're being led. So Jacob recognized, looking back over his life, wasn't really all that it had been cracked up to be and few and unpleasant, few and evil had been his days. He felt like his days were soon to end. In fact, he replies to Pharaoh with that mentality, I'm, I'm not long for this world. It's marvelous that he didn't realize he had 17 more years. <laughs> 17 years of an extended life, 17 years of grace out ahead of him. In verse 11, so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Now, it wasn't the land of Ramses yet. It was the land of Ramses in Moses' day. And remember, Moses is writing this, so he's giving an explanation to those who would read. Oh, yeah, we know where the land of Ramses is. It's Goshen. And Pharaoh had ordered this, verse 12, Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. In other words, food plenty for all. Youngest to oldest, they have the prime real estate in the northeast of Egypt, up by the Mediterranean Sea, this, this swath of land, lush and green and watered rivers, encompassed Goshen. Just a beautiful garden spot there in Egypt. And again, later in Moses' day, it would be appropriated by Pharaoh Ramses. But verse 13 going on says, now there was no food in all the land. There's a contrast being made here. There was food in Goshen, lush landscape in Goshen. They had all their flocks and herds in Goshen. There was food for all in Goshen, not in the rest of Egypt, note that. No food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph, watch what he does, gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food, for why should we die in your presence? Our money is gone. And then Joseph said, verse 16, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is all gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. Listen, do you see what Joseph's doing here? If we didn't know the nature, the character of this man, if we didn't understand the goodness of Joseph, we might be a bit alarmed. He is expanding control over the Egyptian economy. He's acting like a globalist, taking control of everything. It was Winston Churchill, actually, actually who coined the phrase, Never let a good crisis go to waste. Sound familiar? 
This has been spoken a lot. This is a favorite term of the globalist. Man, if there's a crisis, use it. Use it to benefit. Many people right now believe this is exactly what's going on behind the scenes in America. Many are questioning, have we been set up? Many are looking back at the plans already laid in place before coronavirus hit that indicate that those of a global mindset have been just looking for this opportunity, this excuse. And you know what? It may well be. Watch a prophecy update. Check out the the weekly prophecy updates of J.D. Farage out of Hawaii. He's on it every day, man. He's bringing that information down. Listen to what some of the experts are are saying. Listen to what pastors are preaching, and it's all over the internet. But my friends, listen, as you do so, pay attention to this question. Are we driven or are we led? The driven are easily controlled by fear. The led, well, we peacefully follow the only one who holds the power by faith. We trust that regardless of what anything else is going on in our culture or our world, Jesus is still on the throne. He is still at the right hand of the Father. He's still calling and he is still coming. We trust him, we're led. But I find it really interesting that here we see Joseph of all people taking control in Egypt of the money and then the livestock and then the land and finally, ultimately, the people of Egypt as they all now have to get vaccinated and chipped. No, he's just taking control of everything in the way that he could in that day. And as I said, when it's someone of the character and nature of a Joseph, this may not be such a bad thing. The problem is, is all this control is being exerted over the famine-famished land of Egypt. Joseph would not always be there to exert a good nature. In fact, Exodus chapter one, verse eight says, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's the problem with government control. Even well-intended is another king's gonna rise. Another president will come into office. Power will shift. And those who do not mean well will gain control over what is happening. Well, verse 20, continuing, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. That is, he clumped them together so they could eat, so they could also be managed. And then continuing verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So there was a separation of church and state. Verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you that you may sow in the land. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths, shall be your own seed of the field for your food and for those of your households as food for your little ones. They said, verse 25, you have saved our lives. Oh, when government comes in to save us, isn't it a wonderful thing? You saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be 
Pharaoh's slaves. Verse 26, is this hitting a little close to home? Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, Moses writes, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. And Joseph's control now over Egypt is complete. But note this. Think about it for a moment from the position of a led sheep following our shepherd. We follow after the people who now have had all control taken from them and given over to Joseph, they respond by saying, you have saved our lives, and they became bondservants. You have saved our lives, and they became bondservants. That's what happens when you're saved. See, that's the attitude in the heart of the person who truly has been saved. And again, we see here, while there is a... a, shadow a little bit here where we see government control, but think about it again in terms of Joseph. Joseph exemplifies through his life on multiple occasions, Jesus. And Jesus comes along and there is a spiritual shift that takes place when you know your life has been saved, you become a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so we are. And tonight I encourage you, this is a principle that Christ's followers must affirm. We depend on him. We are servants of his. We are led and will be led right into his kingdom where we will serve under his authority. He'll do it all. We are dependent. God has throughout the ages offered people Salvation followed by dependency on him. It's a healthy, good dependency because he's perfect. Not like a human dependency, not a dependency on the government to take care of me, but on the one true perfect God who in the kingdom will as the perfect dictator care for all of his people. Isaiah chapter 55 verse one. Oh, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good, delight yourself in abundance. Where's it coming from? The Lord. Who then are we depending upon? The Lord. Why? Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and that means you and that means me here tonight, and so we're led by a good shepherd. And even though Egypt now is under total control, total governmental oversight, there was a people, as I said before, living the good life in a beautiful, well-watered, northeast swath of land, Goshen. Look at verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen. They acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. It's amazing, in a land where the citizens were completely subjugated to the governing authority, Israel Israel was free. Israel acquired property. Israel was blessed with fruitfulness, that is, kids. 
And they grew exponentially and they prospered as a people. And again, I am reminded, if you want to be free, if you want to be fruitful, even in an oppressive land, be led by the Savior. Like Israel, when all the land suffers, when there is a famine, Amos chapter 8, verse 12, for the word of God, we are fed. We are fruitful in the name of Jesus because we're led by our Savior Our citizenship, I love how Paul says this, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And we can be subjected willingly or be subjected not so willingly when he comes. That choice is ours. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt, note this again, 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And we're coming down to the end now for Jacob, but note this, he originally had, think this through. This is the kind of thing I like to ask when the auditorium's full so I can get one or two responses, but I'll just ask you at home. How old was Joseph when his brothers sold him off into slavery? Do you remember? He was 17. Jacob had 17 years with Joseph before he lost him. Now that he found him again, God by his grace doubles it, gives him 17 more years to be around his son and around his grandchildren. Oh, how precious is your loving kindness, oh God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings Psalm 36, verse seven, God is so good. Verse 29, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. It was a way of swearing we've talked about before. And deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. (laughs) I don't wanna stay here. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he, that is Joseph, swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. You see what just happened? Jacob is now entrusting Joseph with what should be the responsibility of the firstborn. By firstborn preeminence, Reuben should have been called in and tasked with the final care of his father's body, but Jacob hands it to Joseph. Reuben has lost position. This will become very evident in just a moment, but the text reads reads here in verse 31 that Israel then bowed in worship at the head of the bed. In worship is in italics. The word bowed implies that he was worshiping, that he paused for a moment there to worship. But I gotta ask the question, how exactly do you do that? How do you bow in worship at the head of the bed? Do you scrunch up in a little ball on your pillow? Do you stretch out across the headboard like Snoopy on a doghouse? How do you bow and worship at the head of the bed? And note, I don't think the word is bed. 
See, the word in Hebrew for bed, if you look at the Hebrew consonants, remember there are no vowels in the Hebrew, there are just what they call the nikud or the nikudim, which are the little marks, the little jots that are placed around the consonants and give you a sense of where it's going. But the consonants are, if we were writing it out in English, M-T-T-H, mitah, mitah. If the little dots around it are written that way, then mitah means bed. However, if the dots are slightly different, then it's mate, which means staff, staff. He bowed in worship at the head of the staff. And I believe that's the correct translation. Why? Well, we have a couple of different reasons. It's translated bed in the New American Standard Bible. The New American Standard is taking it from the Masoretic text, which I've told you before. That's a Hebrew text that dates back to about the uh, 8th, 9th, 10th century AD. So it's a more recent. But the Septuagint, which was written 280 years before Jesus, the Septuagint text translates not mitah, bed, but mate, staff that he worshiped on the head of his staff. Again, the difference is those little vowel sounds, those those little dots, those nikudim. As Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, which is yod, or stroke, which is the nikudim, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I'm telling you, I believe that the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew is more probable that the word is not mitah, but the word is mate. Israel bowed in worship on the head of his staff. Why does that matter? Well, it's not gonna change anyone's salvation tonight. If you think it's bed or staff, you can go either way, and it's fine. It's not gonna hurt anything, but here's the deal. The staff is the symbol of the sojourning shepherd, and that's Important in this passage here. This is a shepherding family that is being led and he leans to worship on the staff. And the promised land is the land of his sojourn, not Egypt. To lean on the staff is to lean on his walking stick, which he knows he desires will head him back to the land of his sojourn, back to the land of Canaan. And Joseph understands that the burial place that Jacob's talking about, the burial place of his fathers, is the double cave, the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, back in the land. And I want you to note this, that this is not the only time that Jacob leaned with faith upon his staff here at the end of his life. The next event, in fact, is chosen by the Hebrew pastor out of Jacob's entire life story as the seminal moment of his faith. That's chapter 48 as we come into it, but Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21 reads, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. And so we come in now to chapter 48, verse one. It came about after these things that Joseph was old, or sorry, Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. And so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And verse two, it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up on the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lud's in the land of Canaan and blessed me. God Almighty, 
El Shaddai. He's gonna bless his grandsons here. First words out of his mouth, El Shaddai. God Almighty. He speaks of Ludes, which you may recall is Bethel, what he called the house of God. In the land of Canaan, he says, he blessed me. In verse four, and he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of people and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Shimon are, but your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. And suddenly, the sons of Joseph get bumped to first position. Jo Jacob has just moved Ephraim and Manasseh ahead of Reuben and Shimon. And Reuben's gonna soon find this out. In fact, over in chapter 49, verse four, it says, uncontrolled is water. Reuben, you shall not have preeminence. He takes it away from Reuben. You are no longer in first position. You forfeit that. Well, how do we know for sure that's what happened here? Well, we can go over to First uh, Chronicles chapter five. I'll just read it to you. First Chronicles chapter five, verse one, that says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Verse two of First Chronicles 5 goes on, says, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and he did, among the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah, man, he came out to the front. He stood up in integrity. He put his life on the line for Benjamin. He stood up and was honored as a man of integrity, even though he had done some bad things early on. He was honored by his father, loved by his father. Judah was the one, remember, who led Jacob and the family down to Egypt. Judah went first. And Judah will have the praise of his brothers, Jacob will say. But, 1 Chronicles 5, 2, though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, the royal line, the kings, and ultimately Messiah. Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And this is the moment that it happens. You might say, well, why not Judah? Why not slide it from Reuben to Judah? Why all the way down to Joseph? Because while the promised birthright is to the people, it comes through the Messiah. So it's the birthright is to the people through Joseph, but through the Messiah, through Judah. The preeminence here is passed along to Ephraim. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, I understand that. So, so Reuben lost it. Now he's giving it to his two grandsons, the sons of Joseph, of what is sometimes called the tribe of Joseph, but the tribe of Joseph is really the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh later on. But there, there's a, another question that follows. If the preeminence is passed along to Ephraim, what about Manasseh? He's the oldest grandson. Why are you passing it to the youngest grandson? Because once again in the scriptures, the blessing of the firstborn goes to the very youngest brother. And Ephraim, as the youngest of all the 
sons of Jacob, now including the two grandsons, Ephraim as youngest, takes first place, first position. Watch this, verse seven. Now as for me, Jacob continues, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow. By the way, to my sorrow is literally translated upon me. You might say, Rachel died in my arms. In the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. It's very moving, it's very emotional. And here, all these years later, Jacob is still in love with his wife, Rachel. Still misses, still adores his wife. Still thinking about her. See what he's doing here? He pauses, he's right here in the midst of of handing over birthright and blessing the sons. And all of a sudden he pauses to reflect on his beloved wife. He began this whole birthright thing, this whole blessing of the two grandsons by reflecting on God. Now, now, think about this. He's about to die. Jacob is at the very end of his life, and he is waxing eloquent on his wife, Rachel. He is thinking about his God, El Shaddai, which reminds me that at the end, people often will realize finally and verbalize what truly matters. These are things that are important. His wife, his God. What matters to you right now? What is so important today that has to be done, has to be dealt with, has to be taken care of? What rises to the top if you had to make your list right now? Listen, so many things matter so little in the big picture of life. But God, marriage, relationships, you know what Jesus said? Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That's what matters. Loving God, loving people. El Shaddai and Rachel mattered so much. They're on Jacob's mind because this is what's important in life. I pray for myself and for you, that before this season ends, we would all realize and live by what really matters. Consider those things. Well, verse eight, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God has given me here. And so he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were so dim from age, he could not see. Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Grandkids on the knee, I know how that feels. It's a good feeling. You just want to hug them and hold them close. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Well, then Joseph, he took them from his knees and he bowed with his face to the ground before his father there. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left because Ephraim was the youngest. 
and then Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He crossed, in the text, it's he consciously directed his hands to bless the younger before the older. Now hold that thought again and listen to the blessing. Verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Note that he speaks of a triune God. Three descriptions of God, of the nature, of the person, as Jacob himself has experienced God and as he knows God. Number one, God with whom or before whom my fathers walked. That is the covenant-keeping God. God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The faithful covenant-keeping God. Secondly, he says, the God who has been my shepherd. The shepherding God. By the way, that's it. The first mention of God as a shepherd in the Bible is right there. That is highly significant. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or as Psalm 80 verse one says, oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you're enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. Oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. We pray to the shepherd God after whom we are led. Covenant keeping God, the shepherding God. Oh, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse two, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads him out. Does he call you by name? Do you listen to him calling you by name? He knows your name and he calls you to follow. Covenant keeping God, shepherding God. And then finally, amazingly, verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, the redeeming angel, the Malach, the Malach Yahweh, the Malach Elohim, this is Jesus. Jacob refers directly to the redeeming angel, that presence, the God of the wrestling match at Peniel, the face of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It's a profound blessing, and the blessing is umbrellaed by the Lord himself. Proverbs 10, a favorite verse we like to throw around a lot around here. And it is the blessing of the Lord that makes truly rich. He adds no sorrow to it, nor can toiling increase it. The blessing of the Lord. And that's what makes you rich. But don't hear that wrong. At least don't hear it superficially. Don't just hear it's the blessings of the Lord. No, it's the blessing of the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the greatest blessing is the Lord himself. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes us rich. It's the giving of his spirit. It's the giving of himself. It's knowing him and walking with him, shepherded and redeemed by him. That's the blessing that makes truly rich. 
Now, because God is so good, when he blesses us with his presence, other blessings follow. I mean, there are bennies and blessings all over the place. Bonuses. But don't miss that the real blessing is Jesus, is the Lord. So Jacob begins to bless these two boys, toddlers perhaps even at that point, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he begins with the blessing of the Lord, triune, threefold. And then he continues, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Prophetically, we have seen this fulfilled. Continuously to this very day, the presence of Israel today is a mind-boggling reality of the truth of the prophetic word of God. We look around, we see Israel here, we see the Jewish people, and this has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. The generation of Israel. What a remarkable prophecy. But listen, now pay attention because this is big. Whoa, steady. But this is big. We may gallop before we're done here. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Why? Isaac before Ishmael. I get it. He's the covenant son of Abraham and Sarah. That makes sense. Jacob before Esau. Though that one was strange and prophesied and took place exactly as told, we understand now looking back, Jacob, the spiritual man versus Esau, the carnal man. Yeah, the spiritual man is first, is preeminent. Joseph ahead of Reuben, even that makes sense because Joseph being the faithful and loving son, the beloved son, and Reuben kind of messed it up, didn't he? Usurping his father's authority by going in to sleep with one of his wives. Ooh. But here, we have Ephraim and Manasseh, a couple of toddlers. What's the deal? Why put Ephraim first? Two reasons quickly. One, there's a principle at play. And the principle is biblical. Jesus said, Matthew 19, 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. Why? Grace. Grace. The first will be last, the last will be first. Those who can't keep up, they're gonna be brought to the front. Those at the end of the train are gonna be pulled to the beginning. Those who are the losers are gonna be the winners. That's grace. You can't win any other way. If you're at the back of the pack, you can't get to first place unless by grace. 
And the principle of grace infuses all of the scriptures as those who are first or last, those driving, those rushing, those out ahead, those saying, look at me, you're gonna be last, man. Because you don't get there by your hard work. You only get there by the grace of God. It's all about grace. So even looking at the tribes of Israel from first to last, the last should be Ephraim, and yet Ephraim is first. Now, it's interesting, of the northern tribes, Ephraim, last born of all the sons of Jacob, would become the most dominant of the northern 10 tribes by far. Manasseh, his brother, that tribe, ultimately, when they come to the promised land, you'll see this, that tribe's gonna divide. Half is not even gonna cross into the promised land. Half will come in, but the other half's gonna stay. Now we're good over here. We don't need the promise. So ultimately, Manasseh's not gonna follow after the way of the Lord. Ephraim's gonna come into the land. The principle is the last will be first. But, but, there's more than just a principle at play here. There is prophecy and a remarkable prophecy that we're gonna end with. So if you've been drowsing at all, dial in. If you've been steady, get ready to gallop. The prophecy at play is huge. After Solomon, the kingdom split. Should be about 700 years after this time. The kingdom splits, divides into two. The 10 northern tribes will become the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, will be called Judah or the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is also going to be called, referred to as Ephraim. Because Ephraim is the central tribe and is the dominant tribe in terms of authority and even in terms of population. Ephraim, they're in the north. And so the northern kingdom is called Ephraim, but ultimately Ephraim, the northern kingdom, fell hard. 722 B.C. You Bible buffs, you know your history. 2 Kings 17, verse 23 says, the Lord removed Israel, the northern kingdom, from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day, said the writer of 2 Kings. Dispersed into all the diaspora that you've heard about began in 722 B.C. Ephraim, the northern 10 tribes, the kingdom of Israel exploded, destroyed, dispersed. Ever hear of the lost tribes of Israel? And that's something that's been misunderstood and misconstrued and messed up. The reality is there were never the lost tribes of Israel. God knew where they were every step of the way. God doesn't lose things like we do. He doesn't lose tribes. He doesn't lose people. He doesn't lose track of you. So he knows. He knew. And in fact, we can trace it. Many of those during the Assyrian attack and onslaught, many of them fled down to Judah. And they settled down in the kingdom of Judah with their southern brothers while maintaining their tribal identity. Many of them are obviously present in the New Testament in the first century. Anna, the prophetess, Luke chapter two, verse 36, is of the tribe of Asher. That's a northern tribe. The Levites continued in the temple at Jerusalem. The Levites at the time of, of Jesus. Well, they're of the northern kingdom. The tribe of Levi would have been part of the north, though they continued in priestly duty, some of them, 
at the temple. We know the Galilee regions are referred to as Naphtali and Zebulun. Well, those are 10 northern tribes, but they're a part of Judea and Samaria and the Jewish people in the first century. And in fact, the New Testament makes no distinction at all between Jews and Israelites, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. It's all just one people, talked about as one people. And Paul, the apostle, a Benjaminite himself, said in Romans 9, 3, I wish I could, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Israelites. But here's where this gets prophetic, and check this out. Turn in your Bible over to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 as the Lord brings to Ezekiel, and now this is in the time, Ezekiel's in Babylon, so this is after 586 BC. And Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon, same time Jeremiah is prophesying from Judea as Babylon is bearing down and about to destroy Judea. And Ezekiel 37, listen to this, verse 15, the word of the Lord came again to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, and you, son of man, take for yourself one stick, and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Now remember, at that time, there was only Judah. Israel had been destroyed. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel and his companions. So he's got two sticks here, stick of Judah, stick of Ephraim. The Lord tells Ezekiel, then join them for yourself one to the other into one stick that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, Ephraim, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions. I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And the prophecy goes on, but you get the gist of it. There, just before the final destruction of Judah in 586, Ezekiel is prophesying, Judah's gonna go into captivity, Israel seems done, but God's gonna take both and like two sticks, bring them together and they're gonna be one and they're gonna be in the land and they're gonna have one king over them. And it's marvelous to note that Orthodox Jews today still teach that the full return of all 12 tribes to the land of Israel will proceed and will indicate the return of Messiah. When they're back, he's gonna come. What have we been watching in this generation? This generation experiencing Israelites from all around the world, from places remote, from places bizarre, places you wouldn't think, coming from Russia, coming from Ethiopia, coming from distant lands, returning to Israel in droves as God is making one stick from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, once again, bringing them together, two sticks made one. But wait, that's not the prophecy. 
<laughs> There's more here. Back again in Genesis 48, verse 19. Listen to what he said. Jacob speaking. However, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Note this. Ephraim is gonna become a multitude of nations. Well, what does that mean? We've seen a number of first mentions in the book of Genesis. We just saw the first mention of God as a shepherd. And there've been all kinds of first mentions. Guess what? We have just come to the only mention, the only mention of this phrase, a multitude of nations. It's the only time it's used. And it's used here specifically of Ephraim. And in the Hebrew, note this Bible students, in the Hebrew, it's Melo Hagoyim. Melo Hagoyim, what is that? The fullness of the Gentiles. Let me read it to you that way. His younger brother Ephraim shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become the fullness of the Gentiles. Jacob here says Ephraim is gonna be identified somehow with all the Gentile nations of the earth. The prophet Hosea, he comes along later, Hosea chapter seven, verse eight. He says, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned bubbling there on the, on the skillet. After the Assyrian captivity, Ephraim indeed was dispersed throughout the entire world's population. Guess what happened? Gentiles began to marry in, began to mix in, began to become a part. There's a picture playing out for us here. Listen to this, Romans chapter nine, verse 22, the apostle Paul wrote, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, listen, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The prophecy of the two sticks. You've got Judah, pure Jews. You've got Ephraim, but Ephraim became mixed, dispersed. There's a picture coming into focus here of the two sticks, of the Gentile grafted in, as Paul describes, in Romans 11, and in Romans 11, 25, and I wanna hear, want you to hear a nuance here that we haven't focused heavily on before. I do not want you, brethren, Romans eleven twenty five, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the only time in the New Testament that phrase is used. It's used once in the Hebrew scriptures. Ephraim will become the fullness of the Gentiles. Once in the New Testament scriptures where Paul says, a hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The mellow hagoyim. Now I gotta make a very clear distinction here. We are not talking about replacement theology. No, I would call it reconciliation theology. 
That is Gentiles reconciled, even as the house of Israel, Judah and Ephraim, northern and southern, is reconciled and brought together as one people. So those Gentiles who follow of the Abrahamic covenant, who follow in the faith of Abraham, who follow after the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, are also collected, brought in. This indicates the final reconciliation of Gentile Christians as part of the stick of Ephraim together with the restored Jewish people as the stick of Judah, and it's all gonna happen in the coming kingdom. How do you know? Because God said so. Because the prophetic word is more sure than any other word. And Paul describes it also in Ephesians chapter two, verse 11. I'll read it to you. You can look it up later. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at that time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, there are too many in this world right now who have no hope and are without God. Is that you? I hope not. But if you are in Christ, if by faith you are being led by the good shepherd, you are trusting in Jesus. Listen, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Stick of Judah, stick of Ephraim, brought together by the supernatural work of another stick, if you will, the cross of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the cross itself is made from two sticks? Two sticks of wood brought together. And there is the reconciliation. And there is our redemption as the Lord draws Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus say about the two sticks? He said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John chapter 12, verse 32. It's an ancient prophecy of a great reconciliation so that you and I don't have to be hopeless in this world. Well, verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Yet another prophecy, because indeed, 430 years later, the bones of Joseph were carried and transported up to Shechem. They were buried there at Shechem in the promised land. Joshua 24, 32 tells us they buried the bones of Joseph which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Wait a minute, why Shechem? Why not at the cave of Machpelah? We're gonna see in in a, a study coming up, I think just this next week, we'll see that this whole entourage of Joseph's gonna come up and bury Jacob at the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. But Joseph's bones, when they are finally brought up after the captivity, after the slavery of Israel, when they're brought up, they're brought to Shechem and they are buried 
there in the promised land. Why? Verse 22, Jacob says, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And the word there, portion, is also ridge or shoulder. If you look it up in the Hebrew, it is Shechem. It's a word play. I'm gonna give you a shoulder. I'm gonna give you a portion, a ridge. I'm gonna give you Shechem. And so he did. Joseph's bones are buried there to this day. Now, if you're wondering, well, when did Jacob take Shechem from the Amorite with the sword and his bow? Is that referring to that horrible massacre of, of Shimon and, and Levi? Possibly. Is it referring perhaps to another uh, battle that they fought? Possibly. We don't know. It's not included in the scriptural text, so we can't be certain. But we know that Jacob owned Shechem and gives Shechem now to Joseph. Verse one of chapter 49, and we will end here tonight. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come or literally in the end of days. Jacob was a prophet and Jacob was a shepherd. The shepherd was a prophet. And in chapter 49, he's gonna lay out a prophecy of the end of days that is absolutely stunning. In fact, I think it, it, is, it rates as the most significant prophetic words Jacob would ever speak. I end with that just to say this. Be led by the shepherd, who is also the prophet. For all the prophets, they measured everything, they heard everything by the spirit of Christ Jesus, the good shepherd. There is no prophetic word in scripture that Jesus didn't speak to the prophet. He is the shepherd, he is the prophet. And Bible prophecy, my friends, is absolute proof that even in this age in which we live, God is in control. Not the government, not Bill Gates, not the globalist. God, Christ the shepherd, is in control and God my shepherd will lead anyone who's willing to follow. Oh, Father, Lord, our shepherd, we come to you because with you we shall not want. We follow you because with you there is peace. You lead us beside quieting, calming, still waters. You restore, Lord, our soul. You, you take our minds spinning out fears and dread and, and all sorts of possible scenarios and you restore us and bring us peace. And we thank you so much for your word to us tonight. And I wanna again pray that word steady, that this would be a steadying word tonight, a calming, peace-bringing word that we would trust you and keep our eyes on the prophetic word more sure, that we would pay attention to it until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And yet until you come, may we as your sheep hear your voice and follow. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>